0: Let's pray as we come to God's word now. Father, we thank you for those uh, reassuring words that it is not your will that any of us who trust in your son Jesus should perish, that you hold us safely in your arms uh, and you speak uh, words of assurance to us. We pray, Father, as we look at this passage this morning that you will cause us to grow in our assurance in your um, your fatherly care of us we pray in Jesus name amen we're up to the uh the next of the uh the five blocks of Jesus teaching in the gospel of Matthew uh we've seen the sermon on the mount at the beginning of the gospel then we saw the uh the little commission Jesus sending out his disciples uh, to Israel the last three weeks we've seen those parables of the Kingdom that uh, speak of uh, what it means to, to come into and to be in the Kingdom of Heaven. Uh, and in a sense that, that theme of the Kingdom of Heaven continues uh, in, these, uh, in this chapter, Matthew 18. One of the songs that we sang in our online children's sessions during the, the COVID lockdown was Jesus loves the little children. Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. Red, brown, yellow, black and white. They are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. That song was written based on our passage uh, today. But as we'll see, Jesus is speaking not just of those who are Children, because of their chronological age, but because of their status before the Father. What quality of children is Jesus calling us to emulate if we are going to be great in the kingdom of heaven? He said, You must become like a little child to be great. Uh, People have supposed a number of things. When we look at a child, there's a simplicity of heart. There's a, a willingness to believe without asking all the sophisticated questions. There's a complete dependence on their parents. And I think they all carry a sense of truth. But I think the answer is actually here in our text, When they asked him who was great in the kingdom of heaven Jesus called a child and obviously the child came to him because he then set the child in the midst of them and used him as the example. We uh, we see this in another encounter with children uh, an encounter that all four gospels record and in fact it Comes in just the chapter after this in Matthew 19. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people. They hadn't learned the lesson from the chapter before. But Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. He's not saying here that uh, young children literally as chronologically young children have a special place in the kingdom but that children coming to him is a picture of the kind of person to whom the kingdom belongs how is this child that Jesus called How was he humble Jesus said humble yourself like this child well He obeyed Jesus' voice and he came when he was called. But did you notice that before Jesus actually answers the question who is great in the kingdom of heaven, he reinforced again the unasked question, how can one enter the kingdom? The answer was to turn Unless one turn and become like a child, he cannot enter the kingdom. Literally to twist around, to convert, to turn 180 degrees, to become like a child who hears my call and comes to me. That's how we enter the kingdom, through Jesus. He is the the door to the sheepfold. He is the way, the truth and life. He is the fountain of living water for the thirsty. He's the one who gives rest to the burdened. He is the resurrection and the life for those who are dead. He is the son of man who came to seek and save the lost. So this little child who immediately comes at the sound of Jesus' voice is a picture of one who enters the kingdom but they are also a picture then of one who is great in the kingdom of heaven. The child's greatness was in her humility, his or her humility. Culturally children were greatly valued by the Jewish people but their legal status was the same as that of a slave. They they might be heir of the whole estate but they wouldn't actually receive their inheritance until they became adults. Paul talks about that in Galatians. He says, we we were like a child. We were no better than a slave. We owned the whole estate yet we had to wait for the the time to fully come uh, before we received our inheritance. So child, children were precious, but they had no rights. But in the kingdom of heaven, things are upside down, in contrast to the world. The first are last and the last the first. In the kingdom of heaven, children have the rights and privileges of adults. Greatness is displayed not in power, but in service. In just two chapters from here, Jesus will say, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus models greatness for us. As the Son of Man, he served us to the extent of laying down his own life for us. Last week uh, we looked at Philippians 2, which expresses the same... God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. There's two really important things I want us to see in this passage. Firstly, in verse 8, where he humbled himself being found in human form. It doesn't mean that Humility is contrary to God's design for human nature, but in line with it. Jesus did what a true human being should do. What's true to his nature as the perfect man, he humbled himself and walked in obedience to the cross. Secondly, this action of humility as a man wasn't the beginning of his humility. In verse 6, we're told he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That's humility. Not demanding what he was entitled to. But he's doing that not as a man. This is before he's entered this creation. He's doing that as... God as the Son. This is a humility that's right at the heart of God himself. The Son's obedience to the Father didn't start when he became a man. Rather, his entering into human flesh was the outflowing of his heart to obey the Father that was there from eternity. In Jesus Christ We not only see a man who is truly humble, we see a God who is truly humble, who is a servant by nature. The Father, Son and Spirit all serve one another in love. And in creation they designed us to be servants, to be sons, but also in order that God himself may serve us, that we might be the objects of his love. So, who is the absolute greatest person in the kingdom of God? It's God, because he humbly serves all that are in his kingdom. So, nothing less is expected of those who are his image bearers. In our passage, back in Matthew 18, From verse 5 onwards, uh, Jesus isn't speaking of literal children. He's speaking of those who have emulated children by answering Jesus' call to come into the kingdom and who have obeyed his command to express true greatness by serving. This verse should make us recall the Little Commission a few weeks back in chapter 10 where he says, Whoever receives you receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. And whoever gives one of these little ones, the same phrase there, that these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you he will by no means lose his reward. It's the same idea there, uh, receiving one of Jesus' disciples. But here the context is slightly different. In chapter 10 there, Jesus was sending his disciples out to preach the gospel. And so he was speaking about how they would be received by those on the outside, those that they were taking the gospel to. Here he's speaking of their lives together as citizens of the Kingdom. Traditionally, this block of teaching in Matthew 18 has been called the Discourse on the Church because it it contains two of the only three times that the word Church appears in the Gospels. This is a word to us, to his people, about how we are called to treat one another in the community of God's people, in the church. But well, that really ups the ante then, doesn't it, in regard to verse 6. If anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it'd be better that a millstone be hung around his neck and he'd be thrown into the, the sea. This is the ultimate child protection statement. Because it's not merely about how we might view those who prey on children in our community, but it's how God views those who prey upon his children, those who are his treasured possession, as we saw last week, those who are bought with the precious blood of Christ. This is about the Father who is fiercely passionate about ensuring the security and ensuring justice for his children. Now the ESV, which we heard read today, uses the phrase uh, who causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. Now if if you have the NIV, the NIV is actually a bit more accurate here because it uses the word "stumble." If anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble instead of sin. The Greek word there is scandalise and it's a much stronger word than the common New Testament word for sin which simply means uh, failing to measure up to the standard of the law. Scandalise is the word that Jesus used in the parable of the sower. If you remember Those who first received the word, but when the trials came, they fell away. Literally, they were scandalised. See what Jesus is saying here? Those who have become like little children, entering the kingdom not by their own merits or their own greatness, but through humbly receiving what Christ has done for them at the cross. They are the precious beloved children of God and he is jealous for them. So much so that severe judgement awaits anyone who tries to turn their hearts away from a pure devotion to Christ. Anyone who, who leads them away to start to depend on some other person or some other means of salvation. That's why the scriptures are so strong in condemning false prophets and false teachers. It's because false teachers and false teaching turns people's eyes away from Jesus. Whereas true teaching, true doctrine, turns us towards Him. True teaching calls us to fix our eyes on Him. The uh, Apostle John writing to his good friend Gaius and in this letter of uh, 3 John he's warning Gaius against the false teachers who may turn up at his uh, door Uh, but he says in his introduction I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. See how he's emulating the heart of the father there. He loves to see his children hearing the truth believing the truth and fixing their eyes on Jesus. So this word "scandalize" is used throughout this passage. Wherever you see the word "sin," it's that word "scandalize." In verse seven, it's, it's in a nounal form. It's uh, often translated as "stumbling block." It's the word that Paul uses in Romans when he. He's having that discussion about whether or not you should eat meat that's been bought at the market, uh, knowing that that meat has probably been offered to idols. And he insists that we shouldn't put our brother or sister in that awkward position where they feel pressured to act against their own conscience, where they feel pressured to sin by not acting in faith. In that case it's not the eating of the meat that was the main issue but the fact that in doing so they weren't putting their trust in Christ. They were putting their trust in themselves and their own perceived ability to protect themselves from evil. Paul says in that verse, in that passage, I will not put a stumbling block in anyone's way in this matter. See how he finishes that teaching in Romans 15. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. See how that reflects Jesus' teaching Here in Matthew 18, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Receive one another, do not despise one another. Our love for one another should reflect the love that Christ has for us in bringing us into the Father's house. And in doing so, we will bring glory to God. One of the biggest disgraces that we can bring to the Gospel is to fight and quarrel amongst ourselves, to treat one another as if the other was not a son or a daughter of the Father, as if the other was not a joint heir with us in eternal life. Verses 8 and 9 should be familiar to us and it's a bit of a shift because he's just been talking about how we are to treat one another not uh, causing one another to stumble and now he's shifted it back to us and I think what he's he's emphasising here is uh, while we're called not to cause one another to stumble uh, we can't actually blame our own sin on another person We can't say, I only did that because they forced me to. Uh, I only did that because that was the way I was brought up. Each person is actually responsible for uh, their own sin. But we heard him use these words in the Sermon on the Mount, in the context of his teaching on the law in regard to adultery. We saw then that it's not a command to be taken literally, But it's it's extreme language to highlight the seriousness of sin. In this context, though, the sin he's speaking of is not uh, adultery. It's actually a different form of adultery. It's not unfaithfulness in human marriage, but it's unfaithfulness to Christ who is the husband of his bride, the church. This form of adultery is called idolatry, setting our affections on anyone or anything other than God himself. It's actually the most serious of all sins. It's the sin that lies behind every other sin. And Jesus reinforces the solemnity of this warning by using this word, sorry, it's not up there, in verse 7, I think it is, he uses this word, woe, woe to the world for temptations to sin. Now we heard him pronounce blessings at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount The declaration of the state of a person who's in a covenant relationship with God, who knows God's face turned towards them. Well, woe is the opposite. It's the pronouncement of a curse. In the popular imagination, a a curse, I think, is seen as something quite trivial. It's like a spell or a jinx put upon someone by a witch doctor or just by bad luck. But to be cursed is actually the most serious, the most devastating place to be in because it means the absence of anything good. It means God's face turned away. It means being excluded from his covenant. It means being utterly rejected by him. So just as every blessing ultimately comes from the hand of God, so too every curse can only come from God. So what does this tell us? If Jesus pronounces a curse on anyone who leads others away from faith in him, and if he calls us to take the matter so seriously personally that we should be prepared even to lose a limb it means that we should not be satisfied with anything less than pure devotion, complete dependence on Christ, both in our personal lives and in the Church. John Owen was an English Puritan in the 18th, uh, 17th century and he wrote a book called The Mortification of Sin in it he said, do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work to be always at it while you live? Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. When we see sin in ourselves we should be grieved. We should be disturbed. Not because we're surprised that we're capable of such evil but because we know how serious sin is. We know that it grieves the Holy Spirit that it dishonours Christ every time we sin we expose a heart that's not singly devoted to Jesus that still has some love for its idols so a very strong language it's not my strong language it's Jesus' strong language and when we hear it, we may feel a bit unsure, a bit unstable in our faith. Maybe it makes you think, am I really a Christian, given my track record in just the past 24 hours? You may raise the question for you, could I lose my salvation? Is there a risk that Jesus might actually erase my name from the book of life? Well, that is until we look at verses 10 to 14, which remind us again of the Father's jealous love for his children. Firstly, we're told that in heaven the angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Does that mean that each of us has a guardian angel, a personally assigned guardian angel? No, it doesn't. Personal guardian angels are not a biblical idea. So there were some Jews in the first century who believed in them, but it's it's not a concept that we see uh, taught in the New Testament. It's reflected in the New Testament. So, if you know the story of when Peter was miraculously released from prison, uh, he went to Mary's house and he knocked on the door and the servant girl came and she didn't believe it was him. And she said, it's his angel. So, that reflects that there was a, a belief that people had angels assigned to them. But it's not taught specifically. Biblically, angels are messengers The word angel literally means messenger. Every time we see angels uh, encountering people, people encountering angels, the angel is bringing a message, a word from the Lord. Angels are also glorious and fearsome beings, demonstrated by the fact that in many cases when people see an angel, they fall on their face because an angel comes in the power and glory of God himself. So forget the images of cherubs, little babies with wings flying around, or the kind of the gentle feminine kind of images that we have of angels. To encounter an angel is like seeing the face of God. In fact, in some of the angelic encounters in the Bible... What begins as a conversation with an angel then somehow seems to develop into a conversation with the Lord himself. The angels are before the face of God. They see the face of my Father who is in heaven. They are in a sense a mediator of God's presence, a revelation of his glory. So Jesus is using this terminology of angels to say essentially if anyone messes with God's children, you're messing with God himself. Our Heavenly Father has our back. We are taught to, lead, to, to pray, lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil and that's a prayer that the Father delights to answer. Secondly, we're told the parable of the shepherd who searches for the lost sheep, the one lost sheep. Some of the uh, earliest Christian art, uh, I was going to put it up there, but there's a little image in your newsletter. The earliest Christian art that's been discovered is A picture of Jesus as the Good Shepherd carrying the lost sheep on his shoulders, bringing him back to the flock. Clearly that was a significant story for the first Christians. It was one that gave them great assurance during times of great persecution. And as they would face these false teachers who would come and try to lead them away from pure faith in Jesus himself. But see the main lesson of this parable, the lesson that uh, the children saw this morning. It's not the will of my Father in heaven that even one of these little ones should perish. That's the basis of our security. If you ever feel at times... uh, Insecure, if you ever wonder, am I really a Christian? If you ever are fearful that you might lose your salvation, remember this the Father has sent the Son to seek and save the lost. And now that He's found us, He's brought us back safely. We are held by the Father. Nothing is able to snatch us out of His hand. And nothing means Nothing, not even stumbling, not even idols, not even our weak faith, not even a failure to trust. There is no sin that is more powerful than his grace in which we stand. If we're saved purely by free grace, apart from works, That means there are no good works that are good enough to justify us. Then if we're also held secure by grace, apart from works, there are no bad works bad enough to unjustify us. Our sin may be great, but his grace and mercy is greater. So Jesus says that these little ones, those whom the world would classify as small and insignificant, maybe even worthless, they are considered by the Father as greatest in his kingdom. What kind of father would in one breath say, you are my beloved child, come and sit at my right hand, and then in the next breath, allow that child to perish. We have this great assurance in Christ. No matter how fierce our battle may be with sin, he holds us safe by his grace. This great assurance we have in Christ is not just for our own benefit. Remember the context here. This is a discourse on the church. This is in the context of how we are to receive and welcome and love one another. It tells us how the Father views us in Christ, but it tells us how we should view one another. And that's what the second half of this chapter is about, about the matter of forgiveness. If we welcome one another as Christ welcomed us, it means that we should also forgive one another. As Christ forgave us. And that's what we'll explore next Sunday. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this blessed assurance that the Son of Man came not to serve but to be served, that the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. And we were lost. We were the sheep that went astray. But in Christ, you have sought us out. You've brought us back into your home, into your family. You've given us a status before you as beloved children. And we are secure in your hands. Father, we thank you that you have done it, not just for each of us as a person, but you have done it for us together as a church. We are that flock. We are the people. We are the little ones, the children, who together uh, know the richness of our inheritance in the Kingdom of Heaven. Father, we pray that not only we would know a deep assurance of the salvation of ourselves, but that we would know a deep and abiding and enduring love uh, for one another as your children. Help us, Father, to love one another as you have loved us. Help us to welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us. And we pray this in his name. Amen.